There are no people in the future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Everybody, welcome, welcome. It is Friday, January 13th. Yes, a Friday the 13th to start off our first Friday show of 2023. And the technological gremlins are already doing their dirty work. <laughs> but hopefully we got that straightened out for today. Welcome to Raging Chickens Friday Politics Roundup. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. You can support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. You can also help out the show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for the show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. And it looks like we're going to need it, but we cannot let Paul Martino and his oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Levelfield to launch a truly community-rooted pack to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You can get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. Well, on today's show... Bullsiderism prevails in D.C. as Merrick Garland appoints a special counsel to look into the confidential documents that turned up at Biden's old office space and garage. Are you ready for nonstop investigations from now until the presidential elections in 2024? Well, <laughs> like it or not, that's what you get. That's what we get. That's what we get. And catastrophic weather continues in California. At least 18 people, by some counts, 19 people are dead following climate change charged atmospheric rivers that led to widespread flooding, mudslides, and power outages. The National Weather Service reports that Central California received more than half of its average yearly rainfall, or yearly precipitation, not just rainfall, yearly precipitation in just two weeks. In Alabama, we just saw a string of tornadoes rip through that state and others throughout the region. But in Alabama, at least seven people were killed as those series of tornadoes and extreme weather rolled across the state. Meanwhile, researchers released findings from Exxon's internal documents that show that Exxon scientists were strikingly accurate in their climate change modeling as early as the 1970s. Yes, they knew. The researchers call the documents a smoking gun in that claim that Exxon knew the devastating consequences of burning fossil fuels, even as it invested heavily in climate change denial propaganda and became the most profitable corporation in the history of the world. It's just pretty crazy. It's just crazy. It's crazy. Meanwhile, NASA also released climate change data, which paints a really bleak picture of the consequences of Exxon's climate denial. Close to home here on Tuesday, the Central Bucks School Board approved Policy 321, which bans what they call advocacy activities. The 
policy takes aim at teachers, you know, ability to display LGBTQ pride symbols and safe spaces stickers in the school. All under the auspice of, we just want our kids to not be indoctrinated by, by non-racists. We don't want all the, we want our kids to be white supremacists and patriarchal misogynists, not caring whole democratic citizens. And students at the Penridge School District say they feel erased after that district instituted similar ban earlier this year. Yep, that's where we are. It is going to be one heck of a school board election year, that's for sure. For more PA Progressive Talk, tune in to the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you get your streams. And check out his website at therickmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And I'll get you subscribed to their po- his podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And it's 2023. Yep. Got to be listening to Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast. That's no doubt. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind the podcast Rock the House. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Attention all you gamers out there. The Game Inn is a Quakertown-based, black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything for Retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops. And kids get discounts when they get A's in the report card. That's awesome. Check them out on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter at, at the Game Inn. That's with two N's. That's at the Game Inn. If you got a question about a game, look for something hard to get, shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. A special shout-out goes to Jonathan Mann, as always, who wrote our intro song, They're All People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page. Follow him on Twitter at at Man. That's at Man on Twitter. Good morning, Emily. Good morning, Amy. Look, everybody, if you want a progressive future, we need progressive media. Support Pull No Punch's homegrown progressive media today by becoming a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as 5 bucks a month. Simply go to patreon.com slash rcpress and become a patron. We're here for the fight, but we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement and movement in the media. Become a patron for as little as 5 bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress today. And hey, look. We even got a way, like, you don't want to become a, ba- a member, but, you know, you've got, like, a hundred bucks, like, burning a hole in your pocket. You can head on over to paypal.me slash rcpress and drop us a one do- one-time donation right there. We are building up. And hopefully, I have to say, thanks to all the people supporting this show, um, it looks like, I mean, I haven't had the time to actually hook all this stuff up yet. Um, but we've got a new uh, uh, kind of podcast board, if you will. Uh, right now, I'm working off a mixer and this whole other thing, but um, it, it's it's overly complicated. Let me put it like that. <laughs> it's overly complicated. So hopefully, this is going to streamline some things um, and uh, kind of defeat the technological gremlins that have been plaguing me for the past month or so. Um, so uh, thank you all that. But look. The bigger, the bigger issue, the bigger news is that we're going to be expanding um, kind of what we're doing here at Raging Chicken. Thanks to all the folks who are out supporting this show, if you know what I'm saying. Well, welcome to Friday the 13th, everybody. 
it feels like an appropriate beginning to the year, I guess, because um, um, I do think it's, you know, we're, we're in for a, a bit of a horror show this year, um, especially when it comes down at the local level and local politics. Um, I'm, you know, I've been following this, what's been going on in the, um, you know, in D.C. quite a bit. Um, uh, well, actually, that's a lie. I have not been following what's been going on in D.C. quite a bit. Um, but I have been paying attention. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, as soon as this story broke that um, these confidential documents turned up in, um, in an old office space that Biden used um, kind of after he was vice president, um, pretty much, you know, the script was already written for what what was going to happen. Right. Um it was a gift to the cult of both siderisms that says both sides do the same thing. Therefore, they're all equally bad. Therefore, we don't need to make any kind of distinctions um, and we don't need to basically hold um, evildoers <laughs> as the old uh, President George W. Bush used to like to say the evildoers of the Republican Party accountable. Why? Because, well, look, the Democrats do it too. So thus and therefore, there's nothing we can do about it. Right. That's that's the whole cult of both siderisms. Right. It is the most anti-critical approach to how we think about the world. Right. Is simply um, as a way of deflecting any kind of critical analysis by simply saying, yeah, but what about them? You know, the what aboutism, the both siderisms that both sides do it. Right. And it doesn't allow us to make any kind of meaningful distinctions between the two. Just to take one as an example, right? What happened at Mar-a-Lago, right? When we found boxes and boxes of confidential and top secret documents were taken to Mar-a-Lago without the proper protocols, right? Then the uh, Donald Trump and his lawyers denied that they had any of those documents. It required months and months of negotiations even to get in to search the premises. They finally handed it over and swore right on their mama's grave that that was all there was. And sure enough, turns out there were more. They lied about it. Right. And then had to basically be like extracted from their hands. And all through a kind of like a, a a fit thrown by Donald Trump and everyone around him that this was kind of government overreach, right? That this was, you know, the Nazis coming, the Stasi reborn, right? All that kind of nonsense, right? Versus what happened here, right? That Joe Biden had confidential or top secret documents um according to the reporting that i've been reading so far it's not quite clear the process by which those documents ended up where they are right so the question remains about did, were proper procedures followed were these protocols observed and all that kind of stuff that'll that i'm sure that's going to come out in the reporting but what had happened is that there were these office spaces that were occupied by that kind of like the biden center or something like this and it was uh kind of like his like think tank that uh, allowed allowed a space to kind of continue his political organization um, before he ran for president. It's basically how DC works, right? They set up these like quote unquote think tanks, and there were some of these documents that were there. They were in a closet. Apparently, they were locked, right? Kind of in that closet. Um, and uh, when people were going to clean stuff out, they came across th this box, right? That had some documents in it, 
right? I believe the number was around 10 or something like this. Um, this doc- and as soon as when they found that out, they reported it immediately to the National Archives, right, and disclosed it and gave it to them. And and since then, the Biden, uh, the Biden's people and Joe Biden have been cooperating with the people um, that were there. That led to a kind of the second round of investigation to kind of look for these other spaces in Biden's home and um, this other stuff. And they also found that in uh, in subsequent days that in his garage, I guess, a garage of his vacation home or something, there was a locked room off to the side of that kind of like an office space type of thing or storage space like this. And they found a couple additional documents there. OK, that's the story right now in a sane, rational world, we would be able to distinguish between those two. We could say as a baseline. Right. Despite kind of like procedures and protocol regarding regarding confidential and top secret doc, top secret documents right it appears that um politicians especially powerful politicians um might be might kind of be a little loosey-goosey with the uh um kind of with the kind of official protocols right again not quite sure what happened in the biden stuff but but still the very fact that those documents were in that in that office and out of his control or were unaware where they were that's a problem right i mean we would i think all agree with that right um so there so we know that as kind of the baseline then what happens in the normal functioning of government right when those things are discovered they are disclosed right they are kind of shown they are given back over to the appropriate authorities and an investigation ensues right that's what you'd want to make sure you make sure you have all the documents and then that would be the end of story the distinction here is not between that everybody does it the distinction is that the donald trump people willfully and knowingly took documents when they were not supposed to, did not go through the protocols, then lied about having the documents and they had to be forced from their nearly dead hands versus the normal functioning of of government and what we're seeing here happen in the Biden administration, right? Does that mean Biden good, Trump bad? No, it doesn't, right? That's not the point. The point is, is what are the protocols you're supposed to be following, right? And when someone exceeds them and abandons all norms and breaks all codes and breaks all policy and, and law versus someone else who goes, yes, pro- there's, I'm sure we're going to find that there were some improper protocols that were kind of being said, and then, but those documents were returned and there's cooperating on the investigation to ensure that there's no other outstanding documents, right? And probably a tightening of the rules around that for going forward, right? I mean, that would be the way we're doing. But what this is going to lead to, of course, is going to be this enormous, like, circus of investigations. Um, basically, to sh- I, I, like the purpose of the investigation, let's be clear, is not to get to the bottom of the Biden, you know, what happened with the Biden documents and all his the conspiracy theories around that. It will be to prove that the government, according to these, you know, Republicans who will no no doubt open some sort of investigation. Uh, the Republicans who will basically say um, use it as a way to defend Donald Trump against the the overreach of the Stasi government, right? You know, of basically saying that it was indeed a witch hunt going after Donald Trump, and this was the Democrats doing this, and this is going to follow us into twenty twenty four, because we know it's not just going to be what happened with these documents; it's going to be everything. We're going to relitigate. Everything that the Democrats did or was said about the Donald Trump administration, we're going to relitigate the uh, uh, um, the impeachments. We're going to um, there's going to be open investigations of uh, Hunter Biden. There's going to be yeah, I mean, you name it. 
And why is this? Well, because, as we know, the Republicans have no agenda other than, A, owning the libs, and B, hand more money over to the rich. That's it. That's their policies. Everything else is only designed to continue to feed red meat to the worst of their base, to the worst of the narratives that stirs up fear and hatred in order to keep those people engaged and give them a reason to still vote for people who are destroying their own lives. Right? That's really what we're talking about. So whatever. So now we're going to have to, I can't even, I swear to God, I cannot even, I have had an incredibly difficult time watching anything that's on MSNBC right now. And it, it, let me tell you why. Like one, uh, you know, I, I was pretty, a pretty, a pretty regular, let's say listener or watcher, watcher of um, both Rachel Battle Show and um, um, Chris Hayes is all in, right? And in part, the way I've always looked at that is like, you know, you want the kind of official, kind of the official democratic line, you're going to get it there. You want to know what is what are the uh, the media strategies of the Democratic consultant class? That's what you're going to see that discussed. And if you want to know what's going on and what they see, what the mainstream media sees, uh, particular broadcast media and cable news, what they see as the main stories. Right. Um, that's where you can see that kind of discussed. But what, what's what and I've talked about this in the show a little bit before. The most frustrating thing in the world for me is that you have the focus is solely on Donald Trump still. Right. And I, let me see. Let me be clear. I'm not trying to say that Donald Trump is irrelevant. Right. Um, Donald Trump is not irrelevant insofar as he is the, you know, the de facto leader of the Republican Party and is, is influential in that stuff. Right. But that only matters insofar as our sole focus is going to be on like horse race politics between two teams, right? And the internal machinations of this, right? Meanwhile, there's really substantial things happening in the world, <laughs> right? So, I, I, you know, it's been really frustrating. Emily says, yeah, Mehdi, Mehdi Hassan is the only one that he could, she could stand watching right now. I agree. I mean, Mehdi Hassan is... I mean, at least that's kind of critical news, right? Um, even, the, you know, so whatever. I mean, it's it, so I, I can't, I literally, I've, I've turned it on a few times. Say, okay, I need to get listen to this. And I can't. So I'll listen, I'll listen to BBC News, right? Um, which is great because you finally get your, you know, you get that your head out of the America kind of uh, American kind of media network. There's focused on other things that are happening that are of significant consequence in the world, which is great. Um but, you know, I, for for news that's happening around us, I mean, I'm just kind of reading newspapers, you know, I mean, that's kind of really where it's at. Um, and any NPR, I mean, like even like National Public Radio, NPR has is also difficult for me. Right. Um, and in NPR, at least in NPR, you get a broader sampling of things that are going on. But the. The, 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 the issue for me with NPR is NPR seems to still be stuck in this kind of journalistic mode of, of this both siderism kind of stuff, like, and has to pretend as if um, 
that some of the things that are coming out of people's mouths, right, um, in particular these right-wing Republicans, is somehow worthy of taking seriously or treating as kind of like a, a, in an equal way. I just, you know, the critical questioning that takes place on NPR, it, it, you know, it's just pretty lackluster in my mind. Um, now, you do have shows there that, that are much better. Right. That do go, go into more information and stuff. But, you know, it's it's tough. So anyways, I've been you know, sticking primarily to print media. You know, I'm reading it online primarily. But, you know, that's where I'm getting most of the stuff. But it's it's frustrating. So, I, I mean, I really actually I, I, I liked the fact I remember I remember the time before Trump. Right. There was a brief window of time or even at the beginning of Trump, maybe where MSNBC um where both Rachel Maddow show and Chris Hayes' show, you at least got a kind of a range of uh, issues that are covered. It wasn't all, you know, Rachel Maddow, of course, you know, she went in, as soon as she started going down, the, everything's about Russia, 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 Russia is the only story that we're going to cover. That was kind of led us down into, so, okay, that's going to be their media strategy now. The um, MSNBC is basically going to say, okay, we're going to cover one thing and that's all we're going to do. Um, to Chris Hayes' credit, you know, to time, what, what they do is a, an occasion that they cover um, some other stories, one other things kind of break, which is good. Um, but it kind of, you know, it's always the kind of revert back to Trump, revert back to Trump. Right. And if you want to cover the Trump story, that's fine. But it doesn't always need to be, you know, the first two thirds to three quarters of your show. Right. Put it at the end. So anyways. Just as an illustration, a couple things happened. So I forgot to put this in the uh, in my uh, in my intro today, and I apologize for that. But um, one of the things that I wanted to highlight in today's show was the, um, you know, the California or not the California, the New York nurses strike um, just came to conclusion um, with a big win for the nurses. Right. I mean, these nurses have been on the front lines um, through covid. Right. And have been fighting for some really kind of basic things like, yes, uh, some increase in pay. Right. But no matter where no matter what you look at right now the main concern of those nurses was um basically having adequate coverage i don't know why this is not showing up in my uh that's weird um so you know for example like these um the like the nurses basically were saying is that you know in these kind of critical care facilities um, they were being often asked to take care of like, you know, three or more patients at a time when the protocol is for it to be one or two. Right. I mean, you know, because critical care is critical care. Right. I mean, there's a lot that has to be done in order to make sure that those patients are, you know, uh, are, you know, not going to end up on the wrong side of life. <laughs> if you know what I mean, I'm not going to die. Um, and they're being worked like the ragged. And, you know, and this is a result of, kind of continued under like understaffing. Why is the understaffing there? Well, as kind of, you know, hospitals have been bought out by these gigantic, you know, holding companies who's, who are designed solely to kind of squeeze profit out of anything that they lay their hands on. Um, you know, the number one thing to cut are, you know, our staff. And they see that they see staff as nothing more than, you know, a cost. And that needs to be kind of eliminated if they're going to kind of increase profits. And so these California nurses, nurses went on strike. It was a three-day strike. And it really becomes, you know, quickly apparent that without those nurses, the hospitals do not run. And crisis happens quickly. And it, But at the same time, because, you know, nurses become nurses, right, and are doing a job 
primarily, you know, in part because they care about helping people. So it's not an easy choice, you know, to say, okay, yes, yes, these patients, you know, are they're gonna they're not gonna get the care they need during this time. But if we don't stand up and do something about it, that more more patients are going to die and be harmed. So we're gonna go on strike, and they did. Right, um, two major hospital hospital chains in New York City. They went on strike. Um, they came back. They won um, major um, concessions, um, agreements to hire um, hire more nurses, um, agreements to uh, increase uh, wages by about um, something along the lines of I think nineteen percent over the course of the contract. Right, uh, which is pretty. Yeah, here it is. It did show. I don't know why it's that. Let me read you here. So this is from the New York Times. Uh, just I think it was this morning or yesterday after the strike continued, uh, was of him. So more than seven thousand nurses, uh, uh, seven thousand nurses at two New York City hospitals ended the three day strike. Returned to work on Thursday. So it was just kind of yesterday. Um, while they did, they won, like I said, the um, uh, the concessions when it comes to wages. Right. So most nurses on the picket line said that their main priority was improving working conditions by adding nurses to the short staff hospital floors where they said crowded conditions had put patients at risk and led to stress and burnout among the staff. Right. That became the priority. Nurses and again, quoting from The New York Times, nurses in the intensive care units at both hospitals said they had been routinely asked to care for three critically ill, Ill patients um, at a time when they should only be attending to one or two. Striking nurses also described how conditions at hospitals across the city had deteriorated as the coronavirus pa uh, pandemic ra raged on. Many nurses left hospital jobs because of the trauma of the, of the deadly first wave, burnout, or the promise of higher paying jobs as travel nurses. The nurses who remained were left with far more patients to care for, which they have said led them exhausted and frustrated. And so the strike exemplified a problem in hospitals across the nation where cost cutting by administrators driven in part by low Medicaid reimbursement rates had resulted in the staff stretch by well beyond recommended safe staffing ratios even before emergency conditions began. Okay, a couple things there. So one lays out kind of what I'm talking about. But here, looks at that 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 paragraph where cost cutting by administrators, driven in part by low re Medicaid reimbursement rates. So the problem here is low reimbursement rates from government funded Medicaid. Right. That's the only thing they identify in here. Is like so it puts these cost cutters, these administrators and kind of like oh, the victims of a force of nature. Right. Caused by, in this case, the government. No mention of the privatization of hospital change. No mention of these private kind of holding companies coming in and squeezing them for profit for state for stakeholders, stockholders. Right. For investors. No mention of that whatsoever. This was exactly the issues when there was a nurse's strike down uh, outside Philadelphia. Right. When you had the nurses who struck outside Philadelphia, it was the same issue. They were come in. They was bought out, right, taken over by this for profit kind of holding company. And that's what they started doing, squeezing this. What COVID did is it just kind of ramped that up. Right. And I, I guarantee you inside these kind of like, you know, these holding companies where, you know, these people don't even know medicine. Inside those holding companies, what they do is they go in and say, oh, COVID, oh, my God, COVID is, is, you know, all these nurses are leaving. They see this as an opportunity. Well, let's see how long we can stretch out the um, the workers before we hire more. Because guess what? If we can do the, cover the same amount of patients with fewer staff, we're going to actually make a hell of a lot more money. Right? So there you go.
you know, in California, the re, you know this article also talks about in California how there was there was they uh, they basically mandated um, a nurse to patient ratio law, right? Uh, they put this this law. I can't remember. Let me see if I can find when it was put into law. This is two thousand and four, right? Um, they put that in basically to, to mandate this stuff. They put it at a statewide level. You know, that should be happening in New York too as well. But so this is a huge story, right? And I'm not saying that it gets absolutely no coverage. Um, on like an MSNBC or something like this, because, you know, it kind of made some of that um, made some of that. And I think in, in part because it was in New York City, like which is literally down the street from where these like NBC headquarters are, are located and where the media center of the United States is and all that stuff that it gets some coverage. But. I would argue in terms of the coverage, the most meaningful stuff that is going to impact more people, a critical examination of something like this about why it is that we are breaking the backs of our nurses at a time when we need kind of like adequate medical care more than ever. Like, what are the causes of this? Let's look at it. Let's bring in some experts on what's been happening in the kind of hospital change and why this is devastating. Let's look at, for example, if there are low Medicaid uh, reimbursement rates, right? Why is that? Right. Who are the lawmakers specifically by name? Who are the lawmakers who are standing in the way of better reimbursement rates? But those are not the questions, even like, you know, this is why MSNBC is a problem, because they take all their cues for these Democratic operatives. Right. And so the Democratic consultants know full well that a good chunk of their caucus within a Democratic Party are we're on board with the, all these kind of metrics. Right for reimbursement rates because guess what dirty little secret is that under the obama administration some of those a lot of those reimbursement rates went down because they utilize the same kind of like cost-cutting metrics that like the mckinsey uses right these consultant groups do because the primary interest their lens was not patient care quality patient care their lens is profit balance sheets that's the thing and instead of looking at how do you expand and ensure that we're getting the adequate coverage, what do they do? They say, okay, we're taking our shrinking pot. We're not going to try to push back on that and try to get raise more funds in order to kind of do, no, no, no. We're going to basically make the best with what we got. <clears throat> and we're going to cloak it in this kind of consultant class speak of what goes on. That deserves coverage. What else deserves that kind of coverage? Well, kind of what I was talking about here in terms of climate change, right? It, it should be the leading story in every single newscast that the reason, one of the primary reasons that we are facing climate disaster, right? Why at least 18, 19 people have lost their lives in California. Millions and millions and millions of homes and communities like destroyed, damaged, lives uprooted, economy halted, all of that due by this fossil fuel fueled or fossil fueled, how do we do fossil fuel fueled, <laughs> right? Fossil fuel fueled atmospheric rivers that are kind of dumping all this rain on California. Now, did at, this is again, just for all you people out there to be clear. Did atmospheric rivers exist prior to like this current era? Yes, they're extraordinarily rare and not nearly as devastating. As we all know, as the climate warms, that allows more 
moisture to get into the atmosphere that supercharges these kind of storms. So let's do a perp walk, shall we? How about that? We do that on the cable news. Let's do a perp walk of ExxonMobil and hold them accountable for those 19 deaths, for those what is most likely going to be billions of dollars in damages to these California communities, to the seven people killed in Alabama by these crazy tornadoes ripping through the region, and full replacement of all their homes and their lost belongings. Roads rebuilt, not by our tax dollars, by ExxonMobil's profits. Let's recall that ExxonMobil and big oil in general is now getting record profits. When everybody was complaining about inflation and gas prices and all this kind of stuff, it wasn't because Exxon was hurting. It wasn't because... Oh my gosh, that we're in crisis. No, it was because they wanted their profit margins to stay high, even as the cost of oil started to drop. And like it or not, folks, we got to get off of this. So let me read a little bit. This is from a report from the BBC. Um, this is uh, reporter uh, Georgina Renard uh, from the BBC. And just to kind of give you a little flavor of what's kind of uh, was, was in these documents. So one of the world's largest oil companies, I'm reading now from the the report, one of the world's largest oil companies accurately forecast how climate change would cause global temperatures to rise as long ago as the 1970s, researchers claim. ExxonMobil's private research predicted how burning fossil fuels would warm the planet, but the company publicly denied the link, they suggest. The academics analyzed data in the company's internal documents. ExxonMobil denied the allegations. Quote, the issue has come up several times in recent years, and in each case, our answer is the same. Those who talk about how Exxon knew are wrong in their conclusions, unquote, the company told BBC. That's what Exxon just told them. Corporations, including ExxonMobil, have made billions from selling fossil fuels that release emissions that scientists, governments, and the UN say cause global warming. They do cause global warming. The findings suggest that ExxonMobil's predictions were often more accurate than even world-leading NASA scientists. So not only did Exxon know that its business model was going to destroy the planet, their models were even better than the ones NASA knew about. Quote, it really underscores the stark hypocrisy of ExxonMobil's leadership, who knew that their own scientists were doing this very high-quality modeling work and had access to that privileged information while telling the rest of us that climate models were bunk. Naomi Oreskes, professor of history of science at Harvard University, told the BBC News. The findings are, quote, a, quote, smoking gun, suggests co-author Jeffrey Suprin, associate professor of environmental science and policy at the University of Miami. Quote, our, ana- our analysis allow us for the first time to actually put a number on what Exxon knew, which is that burning, fo- burning of their fossil fuel products was going to heat the planet by about 0.2 degrees Celsius of warming every decade, unquote, he said. Researchers have never before quantified the scientific evidence in ExxonMobil's documents, he says. In response, ExxonMobil pointed to a 2019 U.S. court ruling that concluded, quote, ExxonMobil executives and employers were uniformly committed to rigorously discharging their duties in the most comprehensive, meticulous manner possible. What does that tell you? 
It tells you that billions of dollars in lobbying works. Quote, their excellent, cli excellent climate modeling was at least comparable in performance to one of the most influential and well-regarded climate scientists of modern history, unquote. Professor Suprun said, comparing ExxonMobil's work to NASA's James Hansen's, who sounded the alarm on climate in 1988. Professor Oreskes said the findings show that ExxonMobil, quote, knowingly misled, unquote, the public and governments. Quote, they had all this information at their disposal, but they said very, very different things in public. Um, unquote, she explained. Previous investigations have unearthed Exxon documents that suggest the company sought to spread doubt about the science. One internal paper, internal paper set out the, quote, Exxon position to, quote, emphasize the uncertainty and scientific conclusions about the greenhouse effect. Now, what I'm telling you, if you're listening to this show, what I'm telling you is not going to be news, right? This has been the thing that so many of us have been shouting into the void about for so long. Right? And we're seeing the dramatic consequences of this and the, the deaths being caused. Right? The direct line between Exxon knowing the 1970s to those 18 or 19 people dead in California. Lives uprooted. Businesses destroyed. Schools underwater. People displaced. This is our story going forward. That is a story worthy of putting the best critical minds to. And, you know, I've heard even Chris Hayes talk about this on cable news about how, well, you know, look, frankly, frankly, as climate doesn't sell. Right. I mean, we're a for profit company and it doesn't sell and viewers aren't as interested in this kind of stuff. But the richer than Trump stuff, that may be true. But guess what? If you have all those all those resources at your disposal and all your creators on staff, maybe your creators could get a little creative about how to make sure that these stories are compelling. Instead of the lazy, let's follow Trump reporting. <coughs> Excuse me. Crazy. I mean, you think about this in California. This is right? democracy um, now. Demo oops, sorry, in California, there's report. There's, I, I guess, there's. It's not as the the worst possibilities are. Doesn't look like they're going to come to pass. It looks like the rain's going to die out a little bit in, in California, but officials in the Monterey Pen Peninsula were basically issuing warnings that the peninsula could become an island, as this one river that kind of uh, leads through it was about to flood. That means that the peninsula would have been cut off from the mainland for who knows how long until the flooding subsided. I mean, this is what we need, right? We need attention on this kind of stuff. So anyways, I guess that's what we're looking forward to 2023. Uh, my prediction is going to be that most mainstream media is going to be obsessed with the uh, the Trump story and the investigation story. And there's going to be lots of hand wringing and that kind of stuff that's going on. <coughs> um, but it's going to be up to all of us um, to keep our noses to the grindstone um, to pay attention to what really matters here. And again, I don't mean to suggest that what's happening with Trump is irrelevant because, of course, it's relevant. I mean, we're watching the further kind of like, you know, machinations toward, you know, uh, kind of fascism, right? So, of course, they matter. 
Let me see. Where's this other piece? I want to. Oh my gosh. Am I going to have this out here too as well? <clears throat> Here's another story that I didn't mention in our intro today. Um, this is just reported in The Guardian, right? So. Um, so the advocacy arm of the Heritage Foundation, which is, you know, kind of one of the kind of OGs in right wing think tanks, um, the powerful conservative think tank based in Washington spent more than five million dollars on lobbying in 2021 as it worked to block federal voting rights legislation and advance an ambitious plan to spread its far right agenda, calling for aggressive voter suppression in battleground states. Right. <clears throat> This is uh, an excellent report. Um, I will try to remember to put the link in today's show notes. Uh, this report that was uh, was published in the Guardian um, as part of their what they call documented. Um, it's in partnership with documented and investigated watchdog and journalism project. Um, so they basically looked through all the kind of tax filings from the Heritage Foundation and found out that um, the Heritage Foundations, among other conservative organizations, uh, were spending like crazy. Um, to basically looking for ways um, to undermine the right to vote. Why? Because they know that um, they're increasingly a minority um, in the U.S. Uh, in the U.S. polity, right? So that in order to ensure min minority rule, um, as far as we were going forward, then uh, you need to basically suppress the vote of people that you don't like. So there you have it. That's more going forward. And all that's going to become super, super kind of important as uh, we move through the year. All right, I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about what's happening here in the local school boards because uh, it is that season and the school boards are already off to a, uh, well, pretty nasty start. Um, anyways, this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. You can help support this show by heading on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. You can become a patron for as little as $5 a month. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back right after this message. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1893. That was the day that 120 delegates met in Bradford, England, to form the Independent Labor Party. The goal of this political party was to get more candidates that represent the interests of working people elected to the British Parliament. Trade unionists wanted a voice in their government. The new Labour Party supported the call for the eight-hour workday, an end to child labour, collective ownership of the means of production, and a graduated tax system. They also called for unemployment benefits and school food programs. They chose James Kerr Hardy as their leader. He served in that post until 1900. Hardy was born in Lanarkshire, Scotland. By the young age of 11, he was working in the coal mines. He became involved in the union that represented the miners. In 1881, he helped to lead the Lanarkshire miners out on a strike for the very first time. And for this, he lost his job due to his involvement in the strike. From there, he became a journalist where he helped to found the newspaper called The Miner, later renamed The Labour Leader. A decade later, he won a seat in the British Parliament, representing the working-class area of West Ham in East London. While in Parliament, Hardy advocated for women's rights, pensions, and free schooling. He also was a critic of the monarchy. 
which cost him his seat when he came up for re-election. The Independent Labor Party was a precursor to the Labor Party, which was founded in 1906 and continues to be active to the present day. Through these political parties, labor and working people have played an important role in British politics for more than a century. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's Ken Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Uh, well, you know, uh, it didn't take long to uh, for the rot in the Penridge School District to spread to Central Bucks School Board. Um, so, uh, well, I should say it's like it's kind of like a mutually reinforcing rot that's happening in our school boards in Buck, Bucks County right now um, that is going to continue. Um, the uh, as you may have heard, I'm sure many of you have already heard the Central uh, Bucks School Board. Uh, approved a policy on Tuesday um, that basically bans teachers from engaging in what it calls advocacy activities. Now, this includes things like, you know, displaying pride flags in your classrooms or having a sticker that says this is a safe space um, for students who may be experiencing um, kind of, say, bullying or, I don't know, racial harassment or, or misogyny or like uh, uh, homophobia or other forms of abuse, right? I and mean, that kind of thing. So um, that went ahead on Tuesday, right? Um, hold on a second. I'm sorry. This is, of course, part of, remember, that we had the kind of uh, two years ago, we had the... Um, big push of all that right-wing money flooding school um, school board races, particularly from Paul Martino, um, but also from people like Jeffrey Yass and from um, uh, Andy Meehan had his people all out there kind of kind of going like, you know, uh, organizing around this stuff. Um, everything for that right-wing push um, to get us to focus on the fictions of critical race theory, indoctrinating our kids and making white people hate each other or hate, or hate, one, hate themselves um, or the um, you know, uh, vaccine denialism, the anti-maskism, right? All the fake science that was kind of all that kind of stuff, right? Anything that they could use that basic or, oh, yeah, oh, let's not forget the grooming, right? Let's not forget the grooming, right? Anything to get like those kind of base voters, right? That kind of small but very vocal and active and angry group of right wing Republicans to show up to school board, um, to school board elections and elect similarly thinking right wing folks. That's how we got kind of QAnon adjacent people elected to the Penridge School District, to the Central Buck School District, um, to the Palisades School Board down in Pensbury, right? I mean, so we know what's going on, right? We know this has been going on, and now we're seeing the consequences of those elections full. So it's not just about kind of the ideological, um, you know, crisis. Now we're seeing kind of policies fundamentally change what our schools are looking like, and it's happening at a very slow pace, right? That's the way it keeps it out of the uh, out of the kind of like you know our mainstream consciousness. Um, at least reporters are following some of this stuff. 
But we had, for example, the book ban policies that passed in the um, um, the Penrith School Board, even as like Joan Cullen in the school board. Oh, my God, it is not. No, it is not. How dare you call it a book ban? Right. How about the suppression of free speech of students and faculty members and uh, and teachers throughout this throughout the district? Oh, no, it's not a ban. It's just neutrality. Right. We can look at these policies and understand the language in these policies has been crafted, has been workshopped and is being deployed now as political language um, to make it sound as if these policies are somehow kind of neutral. It's about protecting the kids when really this is about a right wing, really religious white supremacist agenda that has made its way into local Republican parties. Right. And activists. Right. That's the whole idea. And this latest policy that was passed in the uh, Central Bucks School Board, it's called Policy 321. Um, it's, you know, basically um, basically says, you know, you are not allowed to have um, anything that, you know, says that you're anything less than a drone. Right. And questions still remain. Well, OK, if I'm if I'm like a gay man. And I'm married to another gay man. And my husband. Right. Gives me, uh, you know, like like say, say a wedding ring. Right. That's got the pride symbol in it. Am I now banned to wear that? If I speak about myself as a gay man. Am I violating the new policy? Is this advocacy? Because it doesn't conform with your white Christian ways of being. I mean, this is really bad. I mean, um, um, Tabitha Delangelo, who is on the school board member, is a school board member at the Central Buck School Board, right, who voted against this policy, right? She has been kind of like, you know, super public and super forth forthcoming in her criticism to what's going on here in the school board. Uh, she's also a professor of education at the College of New Jersey. And I want to read that they interviewed her on WHYY, Emily Rizzo, which again, shout out to Emily Rizzo, who's doing phenomenal reporting on this. Um, D'Angelo is uh, a, a professor of education at the College of New Jersey. What she said is uh, that inclusive spaces lead to better educational outcomes for marginalized students. Quote, stress impairs cognitive function. Creative classrooms, creating classrooms where students know they are valued, included, lowers stress and therefore improves cognitive function, unquote, Delangelo said, quote, creating inclusive spaces in part means that students see themselves and one another reflected in positive ways in books, materials and displays. I'm going to read a little bit more. Board Board President Dana Hunter, Vice President Lee Vlasblom, 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 and members uh, Deborah Cannon, Lisa Sissio, uh, and uh, Sharon Kalalopi and Jim Pepper voted for the policy. Cannon said she wants teachers to act with neutrality in the classroom and not refuse to teach the curriculum that challenges their own political viewpoint. She said one teacher who did not she did not identify refused to name the former president Donald Trump instead of referring referred to him as number forty five. The policy specifically says that employees should not, quote, advocate to students on partisan political or social policy matters or display any flag, banner, poster, sign, sticker, pin, button, insignia, paraphernalia, photograph, or other similar materials that advocate concerning any partisan political or social policy issue. 
An early draft of the policy prohibited materials related to gender identity and sexual orientation, but school officials removed those uh, those terms after a legal review and replaced them with a social with social policy issues, so they don't have to say the words right. That keeps them out from the protected class violations. Oh, it's so crazy. Hunter told the Philadelphia Inquirer that the policy will ban pride flags as well as Blue Lives Matter flags, anti-abortion flags, or other flags that advocate on social policy issues. Right. We, this is out, like unbelievable to me. And, and the problem is, I, I'm reminded of some conversations I had with some students in the past. When we were looking at, um, it was around these actually school board issues, right? Um, it was like one of the things that we were looking at in our class. We're looking at a variety of different kind of angles and perspectives and things like this. And this one student, or it was actually a couple students, were trying to wrap their heads around the difference between the consequences of a policy and the actual words of a policy, right? And we've talked about this on the show before, too, as well. Right. As you notice, the school officials uh, officials went through, uh, took their policy through a legal review. And what the lawyers basically do in those legal reviews is they want to make sure. And I've seen again, how many times we had to do this at Kutztown University, watch as the 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 administration finds all the wiggle language it can use to kind of like not run, you know, it's, you know. Not get itself in legal trouble. Right. So lawyers look at this stuff and they want to make sure that they remove any words that could potentially um, um, put them in, uh, you know, legal jeopardy. Right. So the reason why gender identity or sexual orientation, the reason why they wanted those words removed from their draft was because those are protected classes. Right. Under they have constitutional protections. Right. They have policy um, protections. So instead, they said, look. If you want to remove that, you got to take out those words, right? Um, and then just use social policy issue because the words are neutral. But the fact that gender identity and sexual orientation were explicitly mentioned in the previous draft tells you their intentions. Their intentions are to literally erase the acknowledgement of LGBTQ students, right? And this is precisely what Emily Rizzo had another article in uh, from uh, about Penridge, right? And if you want to see what's going to happen in the the Central Bucks School Board or or school district, here's like, look at what these Penridge students said. So here, this is what she said. This is the title. Penridge LGBTQ students feel erased after losing pride symbols in schools as Central Bucks considers its own ban. This is right before Central Bucks banned it. So here's, I just want to read a little bit of this, just so we know what we're doing to our kids. I'm just going to read from Emily, Emily Rizzo's excellent reporting. <clears throat> pride symbols and safe space stickers once decorated many classrooms and doors in Penridge High School. Now they're gone. Quote, it's like being queer was erased from Penridge, unquote, says Silas Nathan, a transgender and pansexual junior at the school in Upper Bucks County in a recent interview. At the start of the school year, the district adopted a new policy that prohibits prohibits staff from engaging in, quote, advocacy activities, unquote, on school grounds. 
It bans teachers from displaying materials and advocating to students about religion, sexual orientation, and gender identity, social, political, or geopolitical matters when not applicable to the curriculum. Quote, everything feels way less safe, Nathan said. They're trying to hide us in a way. They don't want any LGBTQ representation anywhere. Now the neighboring Central Buck School District, the fourth largest school district in Pennsylvania, is considering a policy very similar to Penridge's, which, I will repeat, they just passed. The Central Buck School Board is scheduled to vote Tuesday, which they did, on the final draft of their policy, which critics view as vague and discriminatory. This is how the policy is in. Quote, because views and beliefs about partisan political or social policy matters are, are often deeply personal, employees should not during assigned work hours, advocate to students um, concerning their views or beliefs on these matters, the policy states. In a statement to WHYY News, Central Bucks um, Superintendent Abe Lukabau said the policy is intended to, quote, reinforce an inclusive educational environment for all students, Lukabau said. His teachers should be, quote, teaching all sides of an issue. So all sides of an issue. So do I teach? Okay, in today's lesson, we're going to talk about why... LGBT um, students have advocated for pride flags. And we're also going to talk about why LGBTQ students should be sent to hell for eternal damnation. Both sides of the issue. Here we go. Is that what we're talking about? Amy makes a great point. In our chat, she says, like, look, there goes MLK Day, right? Or Black History Month or Women's History Month. Like, if you have a Women's History Month, you have to have a Men's History Month too? Well, but if you have Women's History Month and Men's History Month, do you need kind of like LGBTQ Month too? Oh, we have that, right? Gay Pride Month, right? Oh, wait, we got to do that all at once? If we're going to teach about like the history of slavery, do we need to also do we need to teach about the emancipati- emancipation of the slaves and the real reasons why we should continue slavery? Should we have to teach like why like against racism and pro-white supremacy at the same time? If we're looking at questions about say, you know, <coughs> police killings, do we have to look at the kind of the the reasons why? Police are justified in shooting black people. At the same time, the black people are pointing to like we're kind of historically put in a bad position. Do we have to look at pro killing people versus anti pro killing? You know, I mean, what? What? Come on. This is the most like I swear to God, this is like pre kindergarten version of what it means to teach in a democratic society. Make no bones about it. These policies are designed to prevent progress, to prevent the deepening of democracy in our society. They are meant to place a cold blanket over the kinds of discussions that are, yes, full of conflict, but are nonetheless necessary for a democratic society to become the multiracial, multi-ethnic, embracive kind of democracy that we, quote unquote, supposedly aspire to be. 
This is about a slow process of winding back the clock and instilling the permanence of white supremacist rule. Let's be clear. <coughs> this is about enshrining white, conservative, right-wing Christian ideals as the only way to be in this society. We've talked about this on this show. We've had Jennifer Cohen on the show, Jenny Cohen on the show, talking about this kind of like, like dominionism, right? Needing to combat the seven pillars, right? We need an education being one of them. This is that agenda in practice. This is what it looks like when we have ceded power to minority rule and they are making good on what they said they would do. <clears throat> I mean, if there ever was a time that we need organizations like Planned Parenthood, like the ACLU, like the ADL, like, like these people that are actually kind of filing these lawsuits, attempting to defend what's left of our shrinking democratic society. I don't know what else is. You know, I'm teaching a class. <clears throat> Garen McGarian was on the show not too long ago, right? And he and I were, we were you know, talking about, um, um, <clears throat> you know, that recent Supreme Court case. I'm just I'm spacing the name of it right now. Uh, we're talking about that recent Sup uh, Supreme Court case. Um that was looking to basically, you know, <clears throat> roll back um, civil rights and labor rights, right? So a oh, Moore versus Harper. That's right. Moore versus Harper, right? And um, what this was, I'm sorry, not labor rights. I'm, sorry, I'm just, I'm, this is what happens when I try to scroll through things or read at the same time. Um, <clears throat> this is one was basically looking to um, take up that, you know, bizarre you know, doctrine of the kind of the independent state legislature doctrine, which basically said, you know, our votes, majority votes are really simply uh, uh, kind of like a, like a plebiscite. They're more like a consumer satisfaction survey, right? Which a state legislator can take into consideration if it wants when it appoints um, kind of electors for particular candidates, right? I mean, it's just this bizarre thing. Go back and listen to that if you, if you need to know what I'm talking about. But this is the same principle, right? It's the same idea is that once you see that you have you have a party that has become increasingly more radical to the right, as increasingly advocating for the kinds of policies that are out of step with the majority of Americans, what they if they want to maintain power and all they care about is maintaining power, then the, what they do is they shrink the electorate. Again, you go after voting rights. You you use education as a propaganda mechanism to support right-wing religious white supremacist notions of the way that America should be. <clears throat> and let's be clear, this was the this was the problem and we've talked about this on the show before too well. This was the problem with these the Democratic consultant class who told school board candidates Right back in 2021 and back in 2019, they told school board candidates not to talk about, they told Democratic ones, told them not to talk about critical race theory, not to kind of engage over the masking stuff. 
right? Because those are hot button issues. You just want to focus on kind of the reasonableness of this. And by the time they realized that the critical race theory had gained enough traction, it was too late to respond. We had Dina Lagerman on the show a couple times, but we had an interview. She talked about this explicitly. About even her attempt, she ran for school board in the Central Bucks, right? And she basically said, is like, look, this is, I remember saying, we need to be engaged this. And they were like, no, no, no. We need to be advocating for the kind of democracy we want to have. We need practice in advocating not for neutrality in, in our current context. We need to be advocating for a particular vision of what democracy should be. The reason why you advocate for multicultural education, multi-ethnic education, diversity, equity, and inclusion is because that is the version of this society that we want. And you have to articulate the positive vision of the society and give people a choice. Do you want that future where people are included, not hated? Do you want a future where equity rule, rules the world? Or do you want a future in which the strong survive, the rich get richer and screw the rest of us? Where only the white Christians who pray to God, right, and have the, have the guy at the top, the woman underneath, and the children at the bottom, that's the only way to structure society? Or do you understand that democracy must contend with the society in all of its nature? And that's <clears throat> Karl Popper thing I've talked about before, is that the fascist, the one who wants to deny other positions as legitimate, needs to be stopped. And sometimes liberals and Democrats get into this like this 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 thought loop and they get caught up in it. Well, if I'm arguing that all positions should be that we need to have room for people who are diverse and people who are gay and people who are straight. Um, and we have to respect other people's opinion. Well, then maybe we have to allow the Nazi to speak. Maybe that, you know, because that's what it all means, right? Maybe that the fascists have a place at the table too. No. Because they are arguing for the ending of all other positions. That's the big difference. In democracy, as its baseline, respect means at the very base, you have to recognize the legitimacy of the other person to exist and that their point matters. You don't have to agree with it, but you have to recognize the right. Now, what do the Republicans do? These right-wing Republicans, they're trying to legislate out the ability of those other people to exist. especially when it comes to LGBTQ issues. They are trying to legislate out of existence the ability of people of color to vote equally to white people. That is what you exclude in a democratic society. See, this is the thing, right? Is that if I'm a gay man, right, I'm not trying to make everyone else a gay man, 
right? My agenda is not everyone has to be a gay man. My agenda is I want to be able to be a gay man and live my life in full love with who I choose to love, raise a family if I choose to raise a family, have a job, be treated like other people are treated. That's my goal. If I'm black in this society, my agenda is not to make everybody has to be black. <laughs> right? I'm not saying that, oh, in order to have access to this society, you have to be black and love everything that is black. Even those categories don't make sense because there's not the one thing that is black, right? That's what's crazy about this. It's only the white supremacist, the Christian nationalist, this really small group of people who want to hold on to a singular version of society and impose that on everyone else. And that single version is a white one. It is a patriarchal one. It is one that valorizes and canonizes and idolizes and privileges the rich. And if you are not those things, you are not a deserving subject of democratic rule. That's what they're trying to get us back to. That's the loss that they feel. And what they constantly do is they project their own singular version onto the attentions of other people. Because they believe this is what they think, so therefore that person who believes something different is trying to do the same thing to them. <clears throat> when all these other people, the vast majority of people, just want to be able to live their freaking lives. And in an ideal situation, govern themselves with an equal shot of influencing the discussion, the direction of the society, collaboratively and collectively. Instead of having a small elite make all the decisions, that opens up to all of us. That's the struggle, always the struggle. And here we have it. Right here in Bucks County, right here in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, we are on the front lines of a cultural war to turn back the time, to turn back the clock on democratic advancement. And I really do think the challenge going forward is going to be about articulating the vision that we want and organizing for that and campaigning on that vision. This is why I think more than anything else, why the Bernie Sanders campaign caught fire. Why we saw in 2018 the election of the squad is because we saw people 
that argued for a vision of the future that we could get behind. The Democrats' biggest failure, well, one of their biggest failure was not to go to double down on something like the Green New Deal. Instead, they, they caved to fear and their own corporate commitments and walked away from it. The Green New Deal was probably the best articulation of a vision. Was it complete? No. Right. But that document, that resolution that passed, that, the non-binding resolution that passed, right, laid out a picture of where we can go. And one that didn't leave people behind. Look, we know anybody who's who's been alive for a minute <laughs> knows that we when we go for the horizon, right, when we go for that kind of utopian vision, if you will. I, I hate to use that word because it's so utopia is so bastardized in terms of how it's utilized. But go for that vision of a better world. Right? Generally, what happens is we don't get all the way there, right, in, in, in one shot. And there will be contradictions and there will be problems, right? And there will be incompleteness, right? But if the striving is for that horizon, one that is not about exclusion and walls and hate, but about opening up and building a better world for everyone as we heal the world that we've damaged so incredibly. Look, we have a record now of what capitalism does, of what the kind of fossil capitalism that we have embraced for so long has, and particularly the, the form that we have here in the U.S., right? It has led to people like Elon Musk and what he's done to Twitter, for example, just as a small example. It has led to, to, to Bill Gates and his foundation wreaking havoc throughout our public education system by turning everything into like a, a, a high stakes test. And it valorizes and supports our basest impulses because it gets people all giddy, all giddy when we kind of like find the psychological ways to manipulate their notions to think that somebody's coming for what they have. I just rewatched this documentary called on propaganda, right? Um, focusing on Edward Bernays. Um, it's like an hour long thing was, um, just reminding me uh, of all that Edward Bernays did. And really, it was a hundred year plus hundred year project, right, to turn public relations into a science of manipulating the masses amount of people in order to kind of like follow the agenda of a privileged few. We're all in. So, but luckily, yes, we may be at the, the front lines of this in Bucks County, but the alternative is also here, right? The organizing is already here, right? People looking for ways in order to kind of like to, to push back, right? Uh, people already organizing for the next round of school board elections. People already organizing to kind of like find and create kind of alternative spaces um, that are not going to kind of basically tell these kids that they don't matter. Looking for ways to kind of like 
reconnect with our communities to make sure that <clears throat> we will not go quietly into the night, as the saying goes. So <clears throat> that's where we are at, folks. That's where we are at. Um, <clears throat> I thought I'd share uh, as a way of closing out today. So this is like, you know, I, I, whatever. I can't believe how timely all this stuff is. So if you remember last, I talked a little bit about this on the show, but last um, semester I taught a class called Activist Writing Media, which is focused on activists and writing and media. Really the connection between kind of social movements and social movement media and how those things kind of play out. This semester I'm teaching a class called Rhetoric Democracy Advocacy. And uh, I, 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 this is something I'm going to, I'll talk a little bit about on, uh, on our Patreon <clears throat> um, site. And just a reminder for everybody too as well, there's going to be some additional content that's going up on our Patreon um, our Patreon page. Um, again, that's patreon.com slash rcpress. Um, that will be the kind of thing that some of that content will go up um, for patrons first, but then will be released to everybody else. Um, so I don't want a kind of a paywall to kind of, you know, run into things. Um, but it's, um, it's an alternative to trying to basically reconstruct um, our website, RagingChickenPress.org. Um, instead of trying to reconstruct that whole website as a, um, uh, for doing the kind of writing that I'm just, we're just going to move it and put it on our Patreon site. That's kind of the idea. Um, and so, you know, kind of thought pieces and stuff. Again, that new show that I was talking about that um, coming out, Dungeons and Dragons and Dads, will be on there. Um, but I also talk a little bit about in my process of, um, of teaching this class of rhetoric democracy advocacy, talk a little about that. So I'll share with you today a little bit, um, some of this. So, and I'll, again, I'll put these up on our Patreon page here. So one book that I'll be reading here, Ooh, you can't really see it because of the green screen stuff, but is Ian Angus's Emergent Publics and SI on, so SI on Social Movements and Democracy. It's a really, really great book um, for kind of, it's really, it's nicely and condensed um, for some of the issues you bring up. So when we're talking about democracy, what do we mean? Um, and democracy, not just as a formal system of kind of like structuring a government, um, but also when we're talking about democratic culture, democratic society, what's necessary for that to be facilitated within, say, the, say the, the public sphere is large. So that's kind of uh, give us some foundation here. We're also going to have a section we're going to look at what, you know, the, 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 what happens, what are the challenges now? So we're reading a couple books here. There's this little book um, um, by Patricia Roberts Miller called Demagoguery and Democracy, um, which looks at kind of some of the case studies and how when we look at um, the relationship between demagoguery and deliberation and, you know, some of the challenges. We're looking at uh, Timothy Schneider's book on tyranny, um, 20 lessons from the 20th century, <clears throat> um, again, as a way of teasing some of this stuff out. Um, I thought I had all my books right here, but I don't. Um, one of the things that I'm excited we're going to be closing out the semester with is this great book by uh, Anand uh, Giridardas. Um, it's called The Persuaders at the Front Lines of the Fight for the Hearts and Minds of Democracy, um, which I, th I really think this is the kind of thing that we, that we should be doing with a book group or something. Um, because what, what this book really is, what it gets you thinking about is it gets you thinking about persuasion right um and in, in some ways it's a hard book um to sit with right now it's not hard in terms of the language the language is not hard at all but i mean 
in the face of a, say, Republican Party, which is hell-bent on power at all costs, right, the temptation, and, and I think it's it's a necessity at this point, having to organize for power right now becomes becomes critical. But what Giridardas does, he interviews a bunch of folks in this book, and... Um, And they talk about the importance of the hard work of social movement building and persuasion. And it really has brought back to me some these really important questions. So, and, and part of it does it through interviews, right? So it's looking at, I'll just read you this one part. The persuaders, Giridardas, takes us inside these movements and battles are seeking out the dissenters who continue to champion persuasion as an act of polarization. We uh, meet leaders of the Black Lives Matter, trailblazer in the feminist resistance to Trumpism, white parents at a seminar on raising adopted children of color, Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a team of door knockers with an uncanny formula for changing the mind on immigration, an ex-cult member turned QAnon deprogrammer, uh, hovering, um, and hovering off offstage, uh, Russian operatives clandestinely stoking Americans' fatalism about one another, right? So it gives you a sense of it. So it's kind of like, it really is kind of like talking through, right, through these interviews. You get to hear people actually involved in the movement actually doing this kind of work, um, hearing how their, say, own minds have changed in terms of how they approach some of their activism um, and what that means in terms of how we think about building a democratic culture. So I think that's really um, kind of valuable. Um, we're reading some other stuff along the way, too, as well, um, that I think are that will kind of help us tease out those questions about um, what's important right now in terms of, say, democracy. So that's where we're at. Um, so I'll hear some about that. So again, you can check out all that stuff, um, new stuff that'll be going up on our site at patreon.com slash rcpress. That's also the place where you can become a supporter of this program um, and all the work that we're doing um, by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. You head on over there, patreon.com slash rcpress. New content will be coming up there. You get to see our, our fun little new show, Dungeons and Dragons and Dad, um, as well as some kind of um, some some additional writing. So that'll be kind of fun. Anyways, I hope you're all doing well. Uh, thank you all for who've kind of tuned in to kind of join us live and for your comments and your engagement. It's always kind of uh, wonderful to know that I'm not sitting out here talking into the void as it feels like I am so often. <laughs> so anyways, listen, I wish you a good weekend. Um, hopefully we get a break in this uh, rainy weather that is plaguing us here, although I'm sure it is part of the new norm that is emerging. Um, nonetheless, uh, we soldier on. So anyways, this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you Monday. I've got, oh, I should say before, before I go, um, Monday show, um, out to coop live at 7 PM. We're still, there's a couple possibilities of guests for Monday. I'm still kind of back and forth with folks. So I'll let you know about that as soon as possible. If not, um, we'll do another kind of community open show. I'll let you know about that as soon as I um, have some stuff nailed down. Um, we might even have, well, I don't know. I was going to say we might even have our newest, uh, our new tech up and running by then, but I, I doubt it. <laughs> Let's go. Anyways, this is Kevin Mahoney, creative and founder of Raging Chicken. Um, We'll see you all on the flip side and uh, wish you a great weekend and hope that we can get this together, save our democracy and do it together and come out better on the other end, right? That's what I say. See ya!